Hey, yo, what's going on, fam? Thank you for liking it again. This is Clarity with TK Podcast. On today's episode, I have a special guest because he's a fellow New Yorker. We're going to talk a lot about passive homes, solar energy, efficient cities, and whatnot. So thank you for coming on, Mr. Keith, and welcome to the show. Thank you, TK. Yeah, hey, from the old neighborhood. Who would yeah. have thought? Yeah. Um, talking before the show and, and 30 years ago, I lived in the same neighborhood that you grew up in. So, yeah. Pretty Talk amazing. about small towns. I yeah. know. Small town. is a New York small City. place, man. Yeah. The world is a small place. It's crazy. Although we're like halfway around the world and, you know, in different time zones and stuff, it's crazy that podcasting brought us together. So I'm super happy and honored actually to have you on, sustainability, climate change, and everything that could actually make this place as in the planet a better place is very dear to me. So let's dive right into it. Tell me a little bit about how you got into working with passive homes. And first, what are passive homes and what are passive solar houses? So the first thing is when people hear passive solar, they say, is that like solar panels? So I just, I always like to get that one out of the way really early. The thing is solar panels is a technology solution and technology will always fail eventually. I don't know what the lifespan is on a solar panel, but eventually it's going to wear out and die and will need to be replaced. What we're talking about is a design solution. It's designing your house in a way that in, a, in the winter, you bring the sun in to the house and it warms up the mass of the house and then can radiate that heat out through throughout the night and keep your house at a kind of comfortable, fairly constant temperature. And then in the summer, it's designing the house so it will also keep the sun out of the house in the summer and to allow the prevailing breeze to come in in the afternoon often there'll be a breeze that comes up in the afternoon and to flush the heat of the day out of the house you know so that your house is cooling naturally you know in a well-designed house you will need minimal additional energy to keep the house comfortable that's so. pretty impressive. How come it's not, you know, more widely spoken about or widely present in design schools and architecture and whatnot? Well, see, architects learn about it. You know, we've known how to do this since the 1970s. And there are houses, oh. there's some houses in Turkey that are 5,000 years old that are perfectly passive solar design. So it's not like this is some kind of new, new technology. technology. It's about design, it's orientation. So it's not, you know, it's no carbon fiber or nanotechnology or anything like that. It is just pointing the house in the direct, right direction, getting the sun in, keeping the sun out, those kind of things. There, I think there are a couple of reasons why. So energy has been cheap for so long. My mother's house, which was built in the 1920s, had no insulation in the walls because it wasn't actually cost effective. If you looked at the cost of putting insulation in the walls, versus just burning oil because oil was so cheap to keep yeah. the house warm. But now suddenly the cost of our energy has become so much higher. And then also we're seeing the consequences of those decades of cheap, abundant fossil fuel burning, you know, and it was cheap because the government made it cheaper because the companies didn't pay for the costs of actually burning it, like the people dying every year from the toxic fumes that they were breathing and things like that. You know, the cost of the actual extraction, the damage it was doing, all that kind of stuff. And don't want to go down that road. So that's one thing. The other thing is every house has to be designed for the location that it's in to get the orientation right towards the sun, where the prevailing breeze comes in. So the least expensive housing has come in as, you know, you come up with a set of designs and a building company will build the same, maybe they'll build a dozen different houses and you can have the Cape Cod, you can have the ranch, you can have the whatever, but it pays no attention to the site that it's on. It's pointed towards the road and plonk it down. Yeah, so a lot of the houses that I see are built perfectly backward. So they're a perfect passive solar house, except for they're 180 degrees around and so so you know there's an example some friends of mine built a house and i was really really dirty about this because they never talked to me before they bought the house God. they should have they knew what i did i could have just said you didn't realize and the house is built perfectly backwards so we're in the southern hemisphere so we face our houses towards the north 
we're in the northern hemisphere so you point the houses towards the equator yeah because that's where the sun passes so this house is built towards the north it is facing onto the northern boundary as a park because one of the things that can happen is you build a beautiful passive solar house to bring the sun in and somebody comes in and builds a three-story McMansion next to you and blocks all your sun for right. you know ninety percent of the day, right. and so they've got a park all down that side. So, so what did the builder do? They put a garage down the whole northern boundary. So they've got six meters of insulation, air gap between the outs, the sun, and their house. Except down that one wall within, it comes to the lounge room, the garage ends, and there is a a bay with the large screen TV. So the only being in that house, and and I don't know about you, but I think of my large screen TV as a close personal family. <laughs> the only being in that house is is going to be the large screen TV, which will be comfortable and cozy and warm all winter long, and yeah. The rest of the, and then you know, in that same house, they put a cathedral ceiling in there with you know, so it's like a six or an eight meter high ceiling, and there's a loft in that room. Well, at least there's no way to get that heat out of the peak of that roof, and so that loft will basically be uninhabitable through most of the summer because it'll be 50 degrees up there because all the heat of the house is going to collect up in that cathedral ceiling. And they've got air conditioners, but the air conditioners sit at about two meters off the wall. So uh, above that is six meters of heat, like a great big pillow. Right. right. Just, there's no way to cool that house. And yeah, so that. But it looks cool. It looks cool <laughs> on the design, and it's uh, you know, except for when you look where the little N is on the drawing, and you go. Uh, the sun will never come into that house. That's pretty crazy because you'd think you know whoever designs homes and whatnot should know and at least try to put them in the right direction, right? How do you explain the fact that they don't do that? It's cost. Uh, the they... cost is that if you have a dozen houses that you built, mm -hmm. and and somebody comes to you and they say, "I want your Cape Cod house," you know, there's two thousand three hundred and seventy-eight drywall screws in that house. There's seventy-nine. I'm making shit up. Seventy-nine sheets of gyp rock, and there's fourteen thousand bricks in it. So you can price that down to the final screw because you know exactly and then with every design there are costs there's the cost of designing it and the cost of getting a test the engineering of it make sure it's not going to fall down all those things mm -hmm. and if i build one of those that's a fixed cost the cost of designing but if i can spread that cost over a thousand homes because i just stamped that out a thousand times then that cost that i'm having to pass on to the consumer the home buyer becomes almost nothing The design of the home per cost per design might cost three dollars or something. Mm. And what I've realized is that there's a there's a an ultimate source of all this, which is the culture, the cultural belief around housing. And that happened in Australia, and I think it's similar in America, but I don't really know. I only know about Australia. We had a government in the 1960s, and they saw that the biggest threat to Australia at the time was the Communist Party and the unions. And at the time, most workers in unions were renters. And so, if you lost your job because you went on strike and the factory closed down, you could just pack everything up into the back of your car and drive to a different city and get a new job, and it was no big deal. So the government saw that the way to combat this is to create a sunk cost, is to turn all the workers into homeowners. So they created this culture that everyone, the goal of every person was to own your own home. And the goal of owning your own home was that it would be an investment that you would sell at tremendous profit at some point in the future. So the whole thinking that we look at around our housing is as an investment. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're buying investments 
the secret to investing is buy low and sell high. And so we've created this whole culture around, and it's individuals, it's the individual owning their own home because then they can make the most profit when they sell it. And it doesn't matter how shitty it is because you're only going to be in there for a short period of time before you sell it at I have to sing this. I don't know why. At <laughs> tremendous profit. I, I, I did that in the last podcast I was in. I was like, yes, okay, it has to be sung. It's always about tremendous profit. And, you know, it, the whole thing is a gigantic scam. Some people do sell their houses, but one of the things we're really looking to do is change that culture where we think about homes as a place that you will pass on to your children as a place that creates facilitates community brings people together we see a lot of houses now you drive through the suburbs and the people i call them cemeteries for the living people drive into the into the neighborhood they press the button on their automatic door opener they drive into their garage and they never see their neighbors. So they have no idea who lives around them because there's no community because the design of the homes and the design of the streets, everything is not designed to facilitate community. That's pretty insane, man. You you touched on so many different things. What you just said about a cemetery for the living, I remember at some point I was on this island called Tuvalu near Oceania, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and over there it's really tiny it's super tiny but over there they have this culture where your neighbor's kids come to your place and they sleep over there with your kids and then the next night they're at someone else's parents and they sleep over there and there was this culture of literally knowing who your your neighbor is and your neighbor is pretty much a member of your family literally everyone like looked after each other so the grown-ups looked after the children and the children were all brothers and sisters except for the ones you don't get along with you know what i mean so they're that, still your brothers and sisters you they're still your fight, fight. Yeah, yeah exactly exactly you don't go over to, to have sleepovers but you still you know connect that was actually the one country i've been to where i saw that i've never experienced that anywhere else in the world Yeah, and then the design of the houses would be such that there are two things. So the positive example that I always go to as a fellow New Yorker mm-hmm. is the the stoop, the front steps of the houses right. that were and that was a that was not an intentional design, that was an unintended consequence mm-hmm. of New York City being built on granite. So they didn't want to tunnel so you know, deep to make basements for the buildings. So they made a kind of half basement and every house had a staircase leading up to the front of the house. It might be eight steps high or something. You know this, yeah. uh, but I, I didn't you know, know the backstory. I didn't know the backstory though. I'm not even sure, but I'm pretty sure that's why, because it's granite. It's not easy to dig right. down into. Right. So they, but then what it created was this kind of stadium down the street. So mm. on the hot summers, of course, these houses didn't have any air conditioning or anything as the time they were built in. And so in the hot summers, people would collect out on the street the kids would play and the parents would hang out and drink beer and that kind of thing. Yep. And it created community because yep. there was this natural place to gather. You didn't have to invite people into your house, which might be small, crowded, the whole thing. And yeah, it created a community of people. And yeah, like what you say, you know, if the kid from eight doors down is playing up, it's just expected that you as the parents are going to go down and give them a clip around the ear hole. Uh, because everybody is a parent on the street to the right. kids of the street and they're, you're keeping an eye on them. Right. So, and even like having lived in New York in the 90s, which were extremely different to what we know now, I spent so many hours, days, weeks on those stoops, you know, because they weren't mine, but we were chilling. We were just hanging out. The sidewalks yeah. in New York also help that sense of community because they're pretty large compared to other cities that I've been to, including here in France. So, you know, yeah. you have the idea that a sidewalk is not just the side of the road that you walk on, but there were actual activities on sidewalks. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's something that we're losing now because we're trying to make cities more space efficient and each square foot or meter or whatever has to have a purpose. And we completely, like you said, and to your point, exclude the part where there has to be a sense of community and where people are supposed to actually spend some time together. 
Well, there's, you know, there are these imposing movements. The one is how can we maximize the profits per square meter and get the most number of people in here mm. to sell the most number of units. And then there is, there's a whole movement around walkable cities around, you know, and New York City was a classic walk. It was actually faster and more efficient to walk right. places than to try and drive places. Right. Where Perth, where I'm from, is a car city. If an alien were to have hover over the city, they would assume that the beings that they would have to go and speak to were the automobiles. They would not talk to people. They would go down and try and have a conversation with the cars because the whole city is designed around the existence and the primacy of the car and also is seemed to be worshipped as a god in the city where, you know, the the most valuable real estate is given to the car and the people take a distant second. And here I am, I'm up in, just up over the state border right now. And the sidewalks, people say, how come Americans don't walk anywhere? And I, I was going out for walks around the area and the sidewalks, you come along on a sidewalk and it just ends. It just mm -hmm. ends in right. a tree covered with poison ivy. It's not just like it just ends and then you can walk out on the road. No, they want you to walk into that tree with poison covered with poison ivy. They don't really. It's just happened that way. But it's just like, oh my God, this the design here says you will not walk anywhere. We see you. And we're going to stop that shit early because you, you there'll be a sidewalk and it'll go for 100 meters and then it just stops right that's like that's the same thing with with bike lanes uh i i spent <laughs> a brief moment in us in on australia in sydney and it was so dangerous actually to bike around some bike lanes just go and at some point they just stop literally there were points where i was biking and there was a wall like at the end of the <laughs> bike lane and then there was like this whole like you know and then there's a narrow with, bridge with Right, dragons right, or right. something below it yeah it's pretty it's crazy like... and they did the same thing in new york with humans so um, <laughs> yes let's talk a little bit more about the community side of things what do you think made us or made whoever made those decisions change our perception of how we're supposed to live together well so there's the conspiracy side of things which mm -hmm. i you know I'm, i'm a fan of that i won't go into space aliens but you know that it was the fossil fuel companies and the automobile organizations that pushed for design of the primacy of the car and you know making that more important this idea that the car gives you independence the car gives you you know and you can have lots of space and things mm. But again, the result of that, there are advantages. I mean, I work as a tradesman and, and I, so I drive in a van all the time. It's great to be in a place. I, I, when I was working as a tradesman in New York City, it was a nightmare to drive places. You know, you had no idea how long it was going to take. But the sense of community is, so, I, you know, I'm doing some work with people who are in various co-housing situations. And Europe, I think, has one of the best co-housing systems. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that most of your listeners are young they're in in your kind of age demographic and this is the thing that's not really widely understood in america and in australia although is much more common in europe there are some cities where up to 70 of the housing is communities that have come together so in europe there's an idea called the baugruppen it's a german word i think it means group home which We can't use in Australia because a group home is where you put people when they've been released from prison. So it's not a good term, okay. but doesn't translate well. <laughs> but the idea is instead of there being a property developer who buys a piece of land, then builds a building on it and then sells the units within that building. What the Baugruppen does is it gets together a group of, let's say, 20 families. They're usually fairly large groups. And they then come together and they decide who can live together. I can live with you. I can't live with you. Um, and they then decide what are the needs of that community. So maybe it's a group of people with a, a lot of children. So they need, they want to build a house there in an urban area. So maybe they design their house or their apartment building so that it's got a courtyard in the center with gardens and fruit trees and things in it so the children have a safe place to play 
Right. And maybe they decide that the apartments are going to be smaller, so there's more room for the courtyard on the inside. The example I like to give is you get a group of musicians together,、mm-hmm. and you say, "Okay, we're you know I've told this to musicians, and they're like living with other musicians. Are you insane?" But it's an example. So you, you say you get together with ten musicians. Average apartment costs about five hundred thousand dollars. Developers kind of. Profit margin and some of their costs it ends up to be about ten percent of the cost of the project. So if the apartment is five hundred thousand dollars, this doing it this way saves fifty thousand dollars. Just take numbers. You have ten families of musicians together, each saving fifty thousand dollars. They then take that five hundred thousand dollars that's created by that, and they build the most. Fucking awesome studio within their Baugruppen, and then they hire between them. They pay a producer who runs the thing through the week, basically paying the lease on the building, you know, paying for itself. And then on the weekends, the studio is available for all the musicians to use. So that's that's a community idea, but there's no profit in.、It. Yeah. So you so, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's it's difficult to implement in a world where we mostly, like you said, the cultural side of things took over, and homes are looked at as an investment as opposed and, to being, you know, a place where you can raise a family. And what happens in these in these buildings is so they, you know, they build them as a a series. No one ever leaves. Is you know, or、mm. most people never move out. But what happens is, so you maybe you've got a good job in your twenties, and so you've got enough money to invest in this. But you're, it's just you on your own. So you get the one bedroom apartment on the ground floor, and then a couple of years later, you meet a, a girl, and it's the whole thing or your gender of choice, and you come together and you start to start a family. But at the same time, there's somebody who's moving out of the two-bedroom apartment, and so you move up to the second floor to where the two-bedroom apartments are. And then a few years later, there's another child on the way, and there's a three-bedroom apartment up on the third floor.、Mm. It's funny how that worked out so well. What good design!、Yeah. <laughs> and you move up to the third floor, and then you're there for a while. The kids move out. And you know you're an empty nester with the woman of your dreams, and you move downstairs, and you end up back down in the wed- one-bedroom apartment, and you've been in this building for forty years, and、mm. you've never changed your address, just your apartment. And this is a common story that happens there. And、mm. you know, but what we do instead is this design thing where you move, and you move to a whole new house. And often, when you move, you then lose your community, you lose your neighbors and your connections because you've moved to a new area. Right. And this loss of community is just so important, and it's not being thought about in our design. I believe the greatest disease that is facing developed countries right now is social isolation. Mm, really, it all comes down to yeah. It's like people, well, especially after COVID, you know, people have gone one of two ways. They've either discovered their community and have you know, there are people who what, during lockdown were exchanging meals. Right. Where, you know, you'd cook、mm-hmm. and then you'd go and you'd leave it on your neighbor's veranda. And people were putting Facebook pages up where it's like, does anybody? I'm going to the grocery store. Does anybody need anything? And that kind of thing. So they created community, or people discovered just how isolated they were. It's pretty striking in a sense. You talked about the fact that when you're moving, you're actually losing your community. Do you feel like that's necessarily a bad thing? One would argue that moving is definitely a challenge. But once you do, if you move into an already existing community that you're trying to get to know now, and you're trying to widen your network and whatnot, then it's actually beneficial, isn't it? Well, see, it can be both. The important thing is social connection. Is、right. those connections? So there are communities. That are welcoming to people. A new person shows up on the street, and people are knocking on their door. And there are communities that are not. But to me, the important thing is that people aren't artificially creating or through the design making their connection more difficult. Yeah. So you know the neighborhoods where it's a garage, and you move in, and you never see your neighbors to just go. You know, how are the kids? How's the wife? You know. How do you reckon we could change that, though, or at least improve that sense of community? How do you think we could do it and 
in, in a sense, go back to times where people knew their, their neighbors and not just knew them, but actually liked them and wanted to have exchanges with them? Well, I think that, you know, my interest, you know, this, well, this is a marketing podcast. So the thing for me is I see all of society. I say climate change is a marketing problem, not a technical problem. And a lot of people don't realize what they have lost and they don't think about. So, you know, what we're working on is the storytelling side of marketing, which is telling the stories of people who are living in these kind of communities. So I had a conversation on Facebook with a property developer. This is in Perth and he's offering New York style apartments. And I was like, New York style apartments, that's they're, stupid. They're it's tiny. Completely different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, don't have room to swing a cat. Right, anymore. Perth is big. I mean, yeah, New York yeah. style apartments, I mean, maybe New York style condos and mansions but apartments yeah no it was crazy nah. and then the climate okay. is completely different uh, for so sure. much hotter climate yep. all these things Dryer, so when you yeah. start offering passive solar designed houses and he said when the building code requires it and the consumers demand it and i said game on motherfucker okay facebook so i had to, i had to think the last part but it was there uh so you know what we're looking at is consumer-led demand how do we change this we we tell people because most people when i tell people that they could have a house that would be warm in the winter and cool in the summer with almost no energy costs over the life of the home their eyes get like saucers and they're like really really i could that's possible that's possible is what is this solar panels It's like no 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 it's just design the house right not be crappy design so right. what we need is the consumers to be going no actually i don't want to have a house that i have to pay the average energy expense in australia is 1500 to 2000 dollars a year so if you lived in a house with no energy costs and you were living in australia what would you spend 2000 dollars a year on if you weren't pissing it up against the wall on keeping your house comfortable because mm -hmm. it's just bad design that you're making up for. So I, I ask that as a direct question to everyone. Yeah. What would you spend $2,000 on if you didn't have to pay it in energy bills? Right. That's great money to travel. No, that was a serious so question. Traveling. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That one it's... comes up a lot lately, strangely enough, when nobody can travel. I, I asked this question to one person and his eyes got really big and he was like, more motorcycles he already has like 20 but yeah you can't have too many motorcycles and that's know? like a couple of grand a year so that's time yeah, yeah if you're like in your 30s you're likely to live until you're 80 so that's 50 years more yeah, uh, that's like 100k yeah. exactly yeah so that that's, we are that's a lot of money like yeah, in, yeah. even in a in one lifetime and for one person it doesn't matter how rich you are that's a lot of money. So yeah. it so makes financial sense as much as it makes, you know, uh, sustainability and environmental sense. Well, that's the thing. Again, it's a marketing podcast that's in looking at sustainability. And so I always try and circle back to that. I think that is the thing when we're talking about sustainability is that most people where they've been talking about sustainability they're talking about it's good for the planet there's a small kind of sector the early adopters who are making decisions based on you know they're the people who ride bicycles and sort all their recycling you know wackos i, I can say that i'm one of them you right. know the hippies right but the majority of the people the mainstream people they are not making decisions based on the environment. They will pay lip service to, they will say after they've made all of the decisions on their car, you know, that it has a five speed on the floor, that it's blue. Oh, it's good for the planet. Yeah, right. Okay. Right. That was an afterthought. So I think we have to do, all of us who are talking about solutions to climate change is how is this a solution to your problems? You specifically, what are your issues that you're dealing with that my solution solves? And if it then also happens to coincidentally by an unintended consequence solve climate change then whoop-de-doo but we don't talk about being good for the planet you we see, talk about being good for you in terms of your cost and being healthier to live in those are the things that we talk about and that's what i wanted to get at the way we phrase things is super interesting we say we do things for the planet we say save the earth 
when in reality the earth doesn't need saving because like we could literally like go extinct tomorrow and the earth would be just fine it would be still be around for billions yeah, of years it's just gonna keep it's spinning around right. the sun and nature is cockroaches will be fine they will everyone not will be, be fine. fine not just cockroaches to be honest i'm sure like even species that aren't in existence right now would get, yeah. you know be created in a sense and and live their lives so the earth doesn't yeah. need saving we need saving ourselves and when we say like we do things for the planet like the planet doesn't need us we need to do things for ourselves and i feel like the way we phrase that sort of distances us from our responsibility uh, towards ourselves and other fellow beings like human beings animals and everything well else. i like i think about my great grandchildren you right. know i'm doing this work for my great grandchildren right. don't right. exist yet i've got grandchildren they're six and three you know mm -hmm. so it's gonna be a long time before they have children of their own who have children of their own i may not live to see that but i want to make sure that they inherit a better world than what i've got now and so that's what drives the work underneath the work but i don't talk about that humans are not good long-term thinkers they're not good at sure. making decisions they'll make decisions now that makes sense now and then justify it. Well, at least, you know, in our modern capitalist society, uh -huh. everybody's thinking about the bottom line for this year's reporting season. Right. And, and that has seeped into the culture. People have been selling EVs, electric vehicles, for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. And mostly they're selling them on, it's good for the planet. There's right. a nice kind of piece of virtue signaling that you can drive your Tesla now and you can be a multimillionaire, but because you drive a Tesla that makes you all right. And that's working. Yeah. But nobody's talking about, I'm, I'm trying to get somebody to create an ad for an EV where it shows the petrol station. I think about this every time I'm filling up my van. And I'm standing, you know, you spend 10 minutes a week. And I'm just thinking about if you had an animation that showed the petrol fumes coming out of the Bowser and circling around my head and swirling through that whole area around all those, you know, 50 or so cars that are parked at the petrol station and swirling in around the person who's standing in them for eight hours a day and, you know, show it as a visible color moving right. through mm -hmm. and then it, i think it would really focus people's attention wow i am spending 10 minutes a week standing in a circle of in a cloud of a known carcinogen a serious carcinogen carcinogen as you know it's a no fooling carcinogen and i'm doing it every week and then showing you know me driving past in my tesla or my cooper mini ev going uh, right. i think this is an audio only podcast and i'm yeah. doing a little visual of waving <laughs> for your you know your listeners with a big smile on my face because i am not breathing the toxic cloud what i've heard from the owners of evs is they are so much fun to drive that they it's like driving a bumper car because it's infinite torque you just put your foot down and it just goes. I don't know how they don't just constantly, yeah, the infinite torque. And I don't see any marketing for EVs. It's not, it's good for the planet. It is so, it should just say, my new EV. So much fucking fun to drive. Right, right. That's all and they need. Yeah, right. it's like, Absolutely. yeah, never mind. But it's I feel the like planet. we they haven't gotten into to that point yet because probably of, you know, the cost of EVs. Um, obviously, you know, as technology advances, uh, it's, you know, these costs are going to dwindle. Yeah. But I feel like at that point, they will start making a point about it being fun to drive and, and to have. But right now, I feel like they're just marketing it. It's a trend, but everyone is doing greenwashing for their brands. Yeah, there's and a lot of that about. And, and that's, again, that's another place where, I don't know, maybe it's just the circles I'm moving in, but I keep seeing people calling those out. And, you know, when a company puts up greenwashing kind of stuff, you know, we've had fossil fuel companies trying to claim how environmentally sound they are. And it's like, yeah, now just please pull the other one because it's, you know, what you're claiming is simply not flying. And I think with the internet age, they're going to find that, that there's more and more blowback, particularly amongst young consumers. You know, young people are doing their research. I'm, a ba I'm the last of the baby boomers and we could be sold anything. I mean, they convinced us to buy napkins. You know, it was the biggest <laughs> con in the world. I love all these articles, you know, on the internet. The shock horror, you know. 
Gen X is ruining the napkin industry. Yeah, because it was a stupid fucking con. Right. And you guys have done your research and you've gone, you know, we could just use paper towels. They're just as good. They're no yep. different. I've got a piece of fabric that I just use and then I wash it again because it's a it's an old scrap of a t-shirt that I use as a napkin to wipe my mustache. We both have fine mustaches happening. In, and there's so many different things where, you know, I mean, my son has lived in Melbourne for five or six years he's only just bought a car because he just didn't need one he he had a friend who just went traveling and said oh you can just use my car well so there were three or four people who were sharing a car where in my generation it was the rite of passage was you weren't really an adult until you bought a car i just got a car this year yeah <laughs> and yes. i'm in my late 20s yes, so yes that just tells you the whole story i never needed one and like you said i could always like borrow a car and to do whatever I needed, then keep yeah, it moving. There are bikes, there's so many ways to travel, you don't need it. And long. especially if you're living in Europe where the right. cities are designed to not own a car. I remember being, circling back to New York City again, mm -hmm. the little moments that focus your attention. I was working in a theater, we had a young intern, high school intern, and we needed something from, you know, 20 blocks downtown. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh yeah, we'll send Dennis. And I was like, Dennis, wouldn't it be better for one of the adults to go because we can grab a cab? And he said, no, no, it's actually faster for him to go on his skateboard right. than it is to drive in this city. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, right, okay. You know, because they'd Makes used sense. him a bunch of times, so they knew it. Mm -hmm. Because New York is a walking city, and as an old city, the roads are narrow and really crowded. And they're mostly okay. crowded with delivery vehicles, taxis, yep. And people not from New York. Cop cars, cop cars. Oh yeah, cop cars. They're yeah, all around. Those. I mean, they stop on bike lanes and then they fine <laughs> you for not riding on the bike lane that they're stopped in. It yeah. makes no sense. <laughs> hmm, you sound a little salty about it. <laughs> right, yeah. I am, man. I am. They're How long fine. have you been out of New York? And you're oh, still it's been salty a while now, but I'm still salty about it, man. Because yeah, yeah, it's real, yeah. you're like riding on the thing and then you see a car parked right there. So you, you either like, drive around it what am i supposed to do like drive over your car or under yeah your yeah because yeah it makes oh, there's that indian movie have you seen that there's a short out of a bollywood movie where the guy's riding his horse and the oh man that's semi-trailer pulls out in front <laughs> of him crazy and he lays the horse down and <laughs> right. slides it under the semi-trailer that's what you were supposed to do you exactly exactly and he's perfectly fine and so is the horse so. right right no, not, not a know, scratch on his on not his a scratch on, no road rash it was just nothing <laughs> yeah so that's what you were supposed to do there exactly you missed opportunity yeah i know yeah. I, I'm, I'm gonna try it again and see what happens yeah yeah see, see how that works next time <laughs> and no, i'll come down with the mercurochrome <laughs> right Oh, it's pretty crazy. But anyway, so um, let's go back to one of my favorite topics, which is climate change and, you know, the current environmental disaster. Um, mm. Australia was the country that rang the alarm for the rest of the world because this thing has been happening for decades. But, but like was, the, the fires in 2019, those woke everyone up. The thing up. about the fires, which really uh -huh. focused people's attention, right. I think, yeah. was first of all, that they were kind of right outside the city. So in the city, you know, this is this uh, most of the effects of climate change have been happening to poor people. And right. we don't care about them. Exactly. And people in rural areas. And we don't really care about them either. It's right. not nice to say it, but it's true. Mm -hmm. yeah. But suddenly when people couldn't leave their houses because the smoke was so bad, that was a big focusing of attention. The other thing about the Sydney fires is that that is semi-tropical rainforest. The fire started in late August, early September. It's the tail end of winter. That area should be so wet that you can't strike a match in there. And suddenly it's a tinderbox. The other big focusing of attention was that it was the fire chiefs that were saying for two years, you need to do something about this. This is going to explode. Right. And fire chiefs are not hippies. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I grew up in the 1970s. We were talking about this shit back in the 1970s. And nobody was really listening because we were hippies and we had long hair and we were weird and we smelled bad. And so nobody paid any attention to us. But when the fire chiefs start talking about it, who are consistently a very conservative person, 
and they're saying, you have to do something about this. This is going to explode. That was the first thing. And then, you know, now we have the tundra. Again, it's been underwater, frozen solid for a thousand years. And now it's on fire. Uh-huh. Ice does not burn generally. Right. So how is this burning? You know, and it's 50 degrees up there. So these, you know, these are big changes. But I don't talk about climate change. Because what happens when people hear about we're all going to burn up in a fall of fire is they go into fight, flight, or freeze. So fight. Climate change is not real. Climate has always changed. I hear this almost daily on like I'm LinkedIn um, or flight. Maybe I'll just go for a holiday or freeze. There's nothing to do. There is nothing to do. And in fact, the fossil fuel companies since the 1970s have been spending a billion dollars a year funding a PR campaign. They're funding all of the climate change deniers. And one of the messages, and they're lobbying governments to slow down. This is a matter of public record. People tell me that isn't true. I'm like, it's in the corporate record. They have to report who they give money to, and it's in there. Just is something happening. But one of their messages is, it's already too late. There's nothing you can do. Nothing mm. will stop it. Okay. So that's that's the message. You know, these people are such sociopaths that they are prepared to give out that message in order to protect their bottom line. To continue to protect their market share, they are prepared to say, yes, we know this is terrible. We're all going to burn up, but it's too late now. And what I'm saying to people, and I'm particularly saying to marketing people, is that Climate change is a marketing problem. It's not a technical problem. American government has just said they were going to spend a bunch of billions of dollars on doing research on how they can solve climate change. And I'm like, yeah, that's just kicking the can down the road. We already know everything we need to know in order to solve climate change. And the thing that is holding us back is the doing of it and the world that we will pass on to our great grandchildren if we do everything we know how to do right now the world we will give to our great-grandchildren will be glorious you know what we saw with the covid lockdowns in the cities because one of those lies that the fossil fuel industry has been telling us is that vehicles don't actually create much pollution there's no point in changing to evs because internal combustion engines only produce a small amount of the annual carbon emissions so there's no point in doing anything about it and then suddenly we did lockdown and all the vehicles stopped moving and we saw just how terrible the air is in our cities right you know the line that came out of a bunch of different cities is we can see the mountains for the first time in decades right and we realized that we were just looking through this cloud of known cancerous agents and carbon is only a really tiny amount of that you know and they've been saying oh yeah you know cars are much better than they were a decade ago yeah that story flew before covid yep. so what we can give to our great grandchildren is those cities with the air that looked like that that you could see more than a block <laughs> Right. There are right. cities in China you can't yeah. see a hundred meters because of the burning of the coal and all the cars and everything. And when they locked down, suddenly that went away. It wasn't just like some kind of phenomenon that just happened that the skies were so... No, that was because we're, we're burning fossil fuels. A lot of the solutions that are coming from climate change are coming from small businesses that are developing these ideas. Right. And most of them are running as secret businesses because they're crappy at market. So as young marketers and as, you know, old guys who are just get excited about these things, what we need to be doing is helping these companies get the message out and not about climate change, but that we have the potential through the use of these developing ways of doing things to create a future for ourselves that is glorious. It's estimated that 
pollution from fossil fuel burning in America costs the healthcare system something like $100 billion a year. Of people developing respiratory illnesses, of children developing asthma because their houses use gas heat and gas cooking, and it's, it's filling the air with not only toxins, you know, toxic gases, but also radioactivity from, you know, burning natural gas in their house. And then we close up our houses and, you know, air condition it. And then the kids develop asthma. Solving that problem is going to be another problem for the pharmaceutical industry. You know? I so. feel so sad for them. Yeah, the healthcare <laughs> industry that's going to lose out on a hundred billion dollars. That's what I'm saying. So it's really yeah. hard for them to take it upon themselves and look for the common good. It's cynical. It is. Yeah. So they took lead out of gasoline in the 1970s, and 20 years later, there was this cliff. I'm again using visuals. I've got to stop doing that. Of <laughs> you know the drop off in the crime rate, and it. It was largely attributed to the removing of lead from gasoline. And we could see a similar drop off in respiratory diseases, asthma, all sorts of problems that people, and it's, you know, again, it's primarily people in the urban areas who are dying from these diseases or, or, you know, chronically ill from these diseases in the places where the fumes from cars are being concentrated. So again, circling back to my own interest, which is housing, what we're doing with our housing now is, and I, I love saying this. So if you came home and you found that your housemate or your girlfriend or, you know, whatever, your dog, perhaps if you live alone, had put your gym shoes in the fridge, would you be really pissed off or would you be concerned for their mental health and thinking they lost their minds because they put your gym shoes in the <laughs> fridge? You would probably not be, oh, cool, look, the gym shoes are in the fridge. Right, right. Because they stink. They're disgusting. Sorry, nothing personal, but they all stink, you know? <laughs> we're blokes. We have stinky shoes. But that's what we're doing in our houses. We're closing them up. We're turning the air conditioner on. We're running it to either cool or heat the house. And we're trapping in with that that horrible stink of our gym shoes and everything else, the toxic gases, the stuff coming out of our clothing, all that nasty shit we are trapping in our houses and breathing. Where, you know, the passive solar house is designed to, in the summer, you flush that heat out. When it cools down outside, you're flushing that heat out and taking with it everything that's nasty in the house. And hopefully when we clean up the air outside, bringing in air that's, that's better fresh, cleaner, healthier. That's the goal that we're working on. So the unintended consequences of, and what I'm asking people who are marketing these businesses to do is let's talk about what the solutions to climate change give us in the immediate future. When the majority of cars are EVs, EVs powered by renewable energy, we're gonna see clearer air, we're gonna see healthier people there's going to be again a healthcare cliff that's going to drop off 20 years after that becomes the norm and that's that's fantastic that's fantastic sure. for our kids that's fantastic for us yep 20 years from now you're 50 yep. and that's when those health issues start showing up you really want to be breathing down better air so we right, have right. the possibility and we have the possibility there's a big you know kind of all marketers are evil they they make us wear expensive shoes because they've sold us, you know, $1,200 phones as a, you cannot walk down the street if you don't have a $1,200 phone. Hmm. And what I'm inviting people to do, what I'm inviting your listeners to do is use your powers for good. That right. you can, you can bring about this change in the world and it'd, it'd be a future that is glorious. I just saw a study the other day for the difference in houses, rates of miscarriage and premature children's dying in the areas where they had toll plazas, like the entrance to mm. you know a tunnel or a bridge or something, when they changed over to easy pass. So the cars are just driving through, they're not collecting there. Right. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and that's all the fumes out of cars. I'm talking about a lot about cars, but my focus is houses. So what know. did this study show? 
it showed this huge drop-off when there was no longer that enormous source of fumes happening in the area. And then you just take that a little bit wider to the place where the concentrations aren't so high. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe the probability of infant mortality is a little lower, Mm -hmm. but it's not a lot lower. Because that is, if you look out, you know, if you go up to the top of a building and you look across the skyline in any major city, what you see is this layer of just brown muck hanging in the air. And and we can get rid of that. We know how. We do. And it's on us to spread the word and spread the message a little bit further. And it's how we as marketers design our campaign so we have we just have to be just twice as good that's all it's not a big ask but fortunately that's not hard for us because we're so fucking smart isn't that right tk um (laughs) you know so one of the examples around cultural change that i i like is so i have two favorite examples the first is the negative the de beers diamond campaign so they convinced people that you didn't really love the girl if you didn't spend, I think it was a month's salary to buy her a diamond ring. And a diamond prior to that was essentially an industrial product. It was a thing used for cutting stone. Mm. And that was about it. And glass and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they convinced people that you had to give your girlfriend a diamond. Now, I think what they really, if we were selling industrial products, what they should have done is convinced guys to give their girl a chainsaw, you know, because that's an industrial product that's really useful. Right. Every girl would be sporting a steel, you know, the more sort of hipster girls that have yeah. a Husqvarna. And that would be, you know, oh, he really loves me. He bought me an 070 um, with the big long bar on it. That's, you know, yeah, it's crazy. But they did it. They, you know, they pulled it off with this amazing marketing campaign. You know, mm-hmm. Diamonds are a girl's best friend and all right. of that. Right. And then the other one is the Harvard Alcohol Project. So in the ni- late 1980s, they saw that a lot of people were dying on the roads from drinking alcohol and then driving. The culture at the time was you would look around at your friends after being at the bar all night. You would decide who was the drunkest, who had consumed the most alcohol, and you would hand them the keys to drive home because they were loose. Okay. Ready to drive. That was that was the culture. It was insane. And the Harvard Ar- Alcohol Project came in and they created the designated driver. And one of the things they mm. did is they contacted the producers of all the major sitcoms at the time. And they said, we want you to introduce into your scripts if there are people consuming alcohol and then driving the idea of the designated driver. And within five years... That was Main Street. And you were a psychopath if you drank alcohol. People now, 15, 20 years later, will drop a friend who, you know, more than once drives under the influence of alcohol. It's just like, no, I will have nothing to do with you. I will not see you. Right, right, right. And that that was the success of that cultural change. It's crazy how how marketing and the way we promote things changes the perception and culture as a whole. Yes, yeah, so we have a lot of power, a lot more power than we think we do. Mm-hmm. So we have the power to change this and we have the power to ridicule and especially now with the, you know, the internet age. And right. That's the, exactly what we were trying to do here, for example. And that's what I've been yeah. trying to do with, with my podcast. Like I, I talk a lot about minimalism, for instance. Mm. I consider myself a minimalist and it's a way for me to fight against hyperconsumption because right now it's not just, you know, mindful consumption. It's really bad. It's like people buy shit that they absolutely do not need. Buying things that they don't need to impress people that they don't like. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I love because I'm a fourth generation hoarder. So, you know, okay. I actually like things. So the, the minimalist movement makes me nervous. Right. But it's like, nobody needs my things. It's right, right, right. The, you know, the buy it for life movement. It's the idea of, yeah, buy things, but buy things that will last forever. I did a crowdfunding campaign out of Detroit, I think, a few years ago. And the whole thing he was selling, he was selling a hoodie. And he talked about how clothing is being designed where they use a fine fabric and then they stitch it with a heavy thread specifically so it doesn't have the right give to it the two different strings and it tears and falls apart within a year so you go buy another one right and he said no we're gonna build you a hoodie it'll be more expensive 
But it will last. But it years. will last 20 years. Yeah. Right. You will throw it out when the fabric has worn away to nothing. And we're going to use good quality fabric. We're going to use American sewers. Sustainable. And, and keep and... it within our community mm-hmm. and good quality fabric and all those things. And he, I think they wanted to raise something like $50,000 and ended up raising over a million because people wow. just went, I don't remember the exact figures, but yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they, so many and all out of that message. So again, we as marketers need to be looking at what are we marketing? Is it for good sure. for the planet? And how can we tap into this culture that is sick of this, is sick of disposability, is sick of buying stuff that lasts for 12 months and then we throw it out and buy another one? Exactly. When I look at my parents and their friends and we talk about these things, they know I'm a minimalist. So it's always, you know, it's, it's easier for them because now they don't have to buy me any anything Christmas or my birthday. But, um, you know, when we talk about it, they go like, like, I see the generational shift because back then, even when I was a lot younger, they used to take so much pride in having this washing machine that they had for 20 years. And now we take more pride in the newer things, the shiny yeah, things. It's yeah. like, if you got the last iPhone, it's like, wow, you got like the one with the new camera and whatnot. And it's crazy how that generational shift happened because even now when I talk to my parents, especially my pops about, you know, technology and he's becoming a little bit more millennial in a sense because he's always talking about, you know, oh yeah, the new Samsung has this 12, whatever, 20 million pixels camera or whatnot. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. But I mean, a phone's main purpose is not to take pictures from one. And if it did, it's not like you're a professional photographer. So, you know what I mean? And I take pictures of my jobs that I go to. So my phone died recently. I had to replace it. This 20 million megapixels. And, you know, you can you can take a picture of Alpha Centuria with it. And, (laughs) you know, it's like. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't. I don't think I need that, but like yeah. that's the that's the power and of marketing. You know, Sometimes you're talking it about... make you believe that you need stuff that you don't. And uh, it's... yeah, what did I see yesterday? I saw something that was Bluetooth enabled. It was a toothbrush. It was a toothbrush oh. with Bluetooth, and I was like, Why would what? I need that? <laughs> why do I need to? You know, like why does my toothbrush need to communicate with me? Right. No, I do not, because I know that what it's going to say is not going to be good. Right. You know, it's going to be say Keith. You're yeah. shirking again. That was too short. I don't want to hear from my toothbrush. I saw like this this set of knives, um, and <laughs> they Bluetooth enabled. They were not Bluetooth enabled yet, <laughs> but I'm sure it's gonna come. But some of them are like extremely expensive, just because they had like a different set of paint compared to the ones that came before them. That was about it. But like a knife has always had a purpose for thousands of years. Right? Yeah, yeah. So you know what I mean? It's like it doesn't matter. You know, you were talking about your family yep. and, and we were talking earlier about young people. So what my son and his friends, have, you know, in terms of minimalism, I just think this is so brilliant. They have set up birthday gift buying groups. So they mm. have a small group of friends in Melbourne and I don't know, there's 15 or 20 of them. And what they do is when somebody's birthday comes around, instead of them all buying them some piece of shit that just says, yeah, you know, 20 bucks or a hundred bucks or whatever right. it is, uh-huh. but it's just some disposable thing. What they're doing is they're, they're pooling their money together mm-hmm. and they're saying, you know, so they're all filmmakers cause he's a filmmaker. So they're all working in that industry. So the kind of toys they want start at $900 and go straight up from there. Right. So what they're able to do are they're musicians and things. It's like, yeah, oh, I can afford to buy you a pick. But if 20 of us get together, we can get you a really nice present. So instead of buying 20 little pieces of shit that they're just going to throw out wrapped in plastic, they're pooling their money together and they're buying each other one present. Because they all live in small apartments in Melbourne. They don't have room for, you know, I got a carport full of stuff. You can always bring me more stuff and I will put it in my carport. But, you know, if you're in a small apartment in Melbourne, you only got room for, you know, one cup. All right. (laughs) You don't need 20 novelty coffee cups that say, you know, world's greatest dad that you give to a 20-year-old because it was in the op shop. You know, uh, there is this, wisdom that's coming out of the younger generations that's going the way that we've been conned into doing something is is really stupid and yeah so let's do it better
that's the perfect way to end this episode man like, yeah yeah i'm looking the at the time and going we right. are having too much fun yeah, will your listeners take it this long <laughs> yeah sure yeah well this was wow very enriching just talking to you i completely forgot to look at the time as well so well thank you for so much I didn't, wisdom but i was i was having too much fun and paid no attention to it i was like right. oh shit this is going on a long time but hell, yeah. we're having fun right. let's help our help your listeners hang in there right yeah. right right thank you so much for coming on the show how would people get a hold of you so the first thing is our website the comfortable home project and that is a .com.au on the end of it and then i'm keith hutchings on linkedin please send me connection requests i take connection requests from everyone if you turn out to be a wacko later bitcoin seller one of those high deers then i block you later but i'll say yes to anybody and i'd love to talk to other marketers around the world who are working in this area and then we have a facebook page the comfortable home project also I'm based in Perth. I, I might be the only Keith Hutchings in the world on LinkedIn, but there's only one Keith Hutchings in Perth. So come and have a chat. I'm having more fun on LinkedIn than a grown man ought to be allowed to have. So uh come <laughs> and say awesome, hello, man. That's awesome. Well, there you have it, folks. Thank you for tuning in again and till next time. Hey, you've reached the end of this clip. Congratulations. Jokes aside, please take a moment to follow, review, or share it with your audience. It literally costs you nothing, but it would mean the world to me. Thank you in advance for your support. I truly appreciate it. And until next time, peace.